Hello and welcome to the You Matter to Christ podcast. Many of our listeners and guests call this podcast an experience because throughout the variety of extraordinary people we have on the show, you'll hear stories of overcoming trauma, hitting record-breaking business goals, people forgiving the unforgivable, and yes, even miracles that will shock and inspire you. On this show, you'll hear from professional athletes, entrepreneurs, and everyday people from all walks of life. Discover the profound truth that regardless of your background or circumstances, you matter deeply to the creator of the universe. You were made for a purpose, and you matter to Christ. Get ready for inspiring stories, personal testimonies, and uplifting messages that remind us of the unchanging love and grace available to all. And remember this, you matter to Christ. Hey everybody, Chad Burmeister, and I'm your host of the Living Better Story podcast. And today we're with Spencer Keyboom. Spencer is the founder and CEO of Pollen Returns, and it has to do with logistics. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, but before we get into that, we're going to get to know Spencer at a, at a little bit deeper level. So Spencer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chad. I think Spencer's been reviewing a lot of contract documents and those kinds of things today. So we're going to try to take his mind off of that and, and ask him some things that are uh, a little more personal and a little more, uh, you know, relevant to, uh, to everybody listening on the show today. So, yeah, this will be good. It's a good break and I'm excited to be here and excited to uh, share whatever I can and enlighten in any way. And, um, you know, everyone goes through the same trenches, so I'm excited that's right. Well, and you never know what you're going to get when you unwrap uh, one of the Living a Better Story podcasts. So let's dig in. The first question I like to share is about when you were a kid, maybe five, six, seven, what, you know, your first memories that you have. Do you remember kind of what you're passionate about or, you know, where'd you grow up in the country? What were you doing on kind of a day to day basis in those days? Yeah. Um, well, we had a great childhood. I have two brothers. Um, my middle brother and I are. 22 months apart um, and my youngest brother Carter who's still plays baseball with Washington Nationals um, we we're six years apart um, but around six years old um, my mom was definitely pregnant again uh, with Car with Carter um, but we we had a great childhood we lived in a, the bottom of this hill in a cul-de-sac uh, or roundabout as some people you know call them and we had these uh, woods in our backyard and we used to, I used to be back there like building forts, um, lighting fires that my mom was probably freaking out about. Um, and then if we weren't doing that. My middle brother and I were probably uh, out there on the pavement uh, playing, you know, uh, playing hockey to baseball, to throwing the football, to riding bikes, to falling, getting scabs, whatever have you. We were always active and going nuts. I mean, we were, it's 7 a.m. and it's like you don't need an alarm clock where we live. We were out there. That's awesome. Do you still have any friends you can remember from those days in the cul-de-sac? Um, I remember the uh, the people that were there. I'm not I'm not I'm not friends with them any, uh, any you know any longer. Uh, I don't have contact with them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I remember who was there. I remember uh, I mean all of it. I even remember we uh, we had like some tubing 
when my youngest brother was probably four or five and like the like arm care tubing like you know you'd use for like you see the guys use on a fence uh pitchers when they get loose and we made like a three-man slingshot and oh, wow. we used um we didn't really think it through uh but we had carter go like 100 yards down so he's like four you know with a glove the size of his chest and um, i have a baseball trevor's my middle brother's holding the other side of the slingshot the other side of that slingshot needs needs to be held so you can't you know you need technically four people if you're somebody's going to catch it but we hooked it up to the top of the mailbox um and i remember slinging that thing at him and it came out like a knuckleball probably at like 100 miles an hour and um, fortunately, it missed him. Unfortunately, I think it hit our neighbor's gutter, uh, which fell. Um, <laughs> I, I, we ran inside, and that was pretty much the end of it. Wow. I can visualize that. My best friend came up to my door when I was five. It turns out he's adopted. I didn't know that at the time. And he knocks on the door. Do you have any little kids here? And I was shy, hiding behind my mom. We ended up going playing ba uh, basketball in the in our – we were at the top of a cul-de-sac of a street. And um, – you know, ended up riding bikes together. He moved to Arizona and we've still stayed best friends to this day. So it's very cool. Those kinds of memories when we have kids of our own, like you do. And like I do, those are the kinds of things to, you know, to think about and remember of how our childhood was and how can we produce something that's similar or better for our kids. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, for yeah. sure. Is Great. there any connection between how you were as a kid um, and what you're doing now, obviously your brother who plays for, uh, plays baseball, you know, I think that story articulates a little bit about how he got to where he is. How did you get to where you are? And does it tie back to what you're passionate about when you were little? Uh, yeah, it actually, it really does. I mean, um, my middle brother was always, you know, into video games and, um, I never, never really got into them. Um, not cause I have anything against them. I just, uh, it's like base guys, you know, guys that played with, they play baseball, we play baseball and we're, we're out there and I'm out there for three to four hours and, you know, we lose a game or even if we win the game, I was, all I could think was like, the last thing I want to do is go back and play a video game where I could potentially lose 10 times in an hour and be really pissed off. So um, <laughs> I avoided those. And, but no, I mean, in the backyard, I mean, really, I mean, I mean, I would be building stuff constantly, like not from a Legos, I, I like, you know, putting trees together, building forts um even if i was just digging a hole right i mean who cares it was i had to be doing something and trying to build something um and that for me was you know going into baseball was building a career and how you navigate those waters um now obviously you're building a company um which there's even more overlap uh from the baseball side into what i'm doing now some you know people like to, to bucket you right as an entrepreneur i guess you can say mm -hmm. uh, but that being said, it's still the same concept, right? I'm, I'm, you're going through the minor leagues. It's a constant battle. You have highs and lows. You know, you're sitting there and you want things to move quicker, but they move at the pace they're supposed to be moving at. And so it really is a ton of overlap uh, from growing up to where I'm at now. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so from then to now, there's always stuff that happens to us in the middle of life. And um that feels like, you know, oh my gosh, how am I going to get through this? Have you had any of those times that are just almost impossible where you're like, how am I going to do this? That, you know, maybe our audience may be experiencing today, anything you're comfortable sharing on the podcast? Yeah. Um, 
you know, and I appreciate you sending that over and uh, you know, some of the questions uh, before. Um, but yeah, so 2017, um, I actually lost my hearing in my right ear, like abruptly lost it. Um, we'll, we'll save the details. Um, but essentially, um, it was not expected. It was not necessarily uh, warranted. I didn't, I didn't make a mistake myself or, you know, fire a gun off or do anything like that. Um, but it was um, something that it happened. And from that experience, um, one, I would say you don't really realize how much you use your hearing. Let's just put it that way. Uh, but you know, you know, you're sitting in a restaurant and you're going, oh, it's loud in here. You, know, you don't really hear anything. Uh, you also angle yourself at a table differently, um, especially in baseball. It's amazing, you know, what the sound does off the bat. How you've you've correlated the sound of a ball off a bat as to the direction and potentially the distance from where that ball is going. And it really is something where if you put an earplug in somebody's ear and it makes a big difference, like actually like really what's going on and how it's happening. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, that was a, that was definitely a, it's a painful memory, so to speak, but definitely a, a memory that, or an experience, although traumatic, something that you, you know, you build off of um, as an individual because life goes on. Wow. We had the, um, I don't know what they call it. Long, long, long punter, I think is what they call it uh, at USC who went blind in one eye. And then he uh, met Pete Carroll somehow. He sent him an e a, a note or something. And he's like, Hey, this was when he was young, right? He was still in high school. He said, Hey, I've always wanted to be a long kicker and I want to play for USC. Well, Pete follows up with this kid takes a liking to him and then he's getting closer and I don't know all the details, but he's about to, they're going to have to have surgery of his other good eye and actually remove it so that he can still see today, but he knows within a week or 10 days, they're going to do surgery and he will never see again. And so when he spoke to us at this event, he, he said, it was the best thing that ever, it was the best thing that ha that could have happened to me. It's just, it's life. It's what happened. And, and the reason he said that he's like, I met Pete Carroll. I got to play. I got to kick in, in the USC game. I played for USC, which was my dream of my life. So he, it was like, you know, and here he's wearing glasses and, and can't see. So it's, it's, yeah. it's interesting to go through those experiences and, and then end up making it into your strength. And it just becomes part of who you are. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, um, you know, I wouldn't say I have supersonic hearing at all in my other ear, uh, let's just say. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, it happened in 2017. Um, if you looked at my numbers uh, statistically as a player in, in my career, uh, in 16, I was placed on the roster. Um, I was called up to the big leagues at the end of the year. It was, I didn't really even count it. Uh, Wilson Ramos tore his ACL. I was already sent home. I had the worst year of my career uh, in 16. Um, so coming into 17, I was, you know, gung-ho. Um, this happened three weeks before spring training kicked off. Um, and I'm, I'm not an excuse person. So, you know, you're, you're fighting, crashing, uh, scratching and clawing um, to, to prove everybody that, hey, that was an, you know, an, an outlier of a year. Um, you get sat down in the office, uh, you get DFA'd, nobody, nobody picks you up, which is 
pretty standard in spring training. And if you do get picked up, you're probably going to get DFA'd again. And then you get picked up by somebody else and get DFA'd again. And then you get picked up again and DFA'd. And then you're just stuck there anyways. Um, but get called in the office, told you're not uh, a big leaguer. And you're playing for 29 other teams. And now I'm sitting in double A, just playing once or twice a week, trying to make the most of opportunities and just waiting for to capitalize on when one comes. Um, and I actually got one and capitalized and found myself in the big leagues in 18 for most of the year. And it was awesome. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. Stay the course. There's a, there's a great book that I highly recommend you check out. And I played lacrosse in high school and college. Uh, it was a club sport team back at Colorado state and we traveled all over and had a lot of fun. Yeah. So I never, I never attached myself to sports. I attached myself to being competitive. And so it was like, whatever it is, whether you're a CEO or a seller or whatever. Well, Daryl Stinson uh, was supposed to play in the NFL and he had back problems with a slip disc that was very terrible. They gave him drugs for two years and he got to the point where he was kind of addicted. And so he was ready to end it all. And then two different people came into his uh, place where he was in the psych ward and said, Hey, God, God told me I need to talk to you. And he's like, one was a lady that didn't even work in his ward, but was on another area and goes, Hey, I don't know why I'm here, but God told me I need to come talk to you. Well, anyway, long and short is God saved him. And now he wrote a book that's just fabulous. And he's more happy now than he ever would have been as an NFL player. And it's called Second Chance Athletes. Really, really, really good read. Um, that, that, yeah, anybody who's in sports and, and makes the pivot into something else, this book helps you just go, oh, got it. That's why I did what I did. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it's... um. It's obviously it's different, but um, I mean, for myself, walking away uh, wasn't easy, to be honest. But, but I, I never met a 35 year old guy playing AAA baseball who's happy, um, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, you know, I, I think deep down internally, they may be a really happy person, but deep down internally, you know, you you haven't accomplished, um, call it the dream. I like to like I bucket things. Uh, this is after baseball, but, you know, I realized it because something I do that I, I like is I, I do like to give back in the game of baseball, which is enough for me when it comes to, I do lessons with one kid. Um, he's going to Mississippi state. He's talented, um, great family, great individual. Um, and then I volunteer uh, with uh, the summer ball team I used to play for uh, 17, 18, and then also an inner city group down here in Atlanta called lead um, once a month with those guys. And, but at the same time, if, 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 if I ask a 17 or 16 year old kid, what's your uh, goal in baseball? They'll say, oh, it's playing the big leagues most of the time or, oh, I want to go play division one baseball. And I'm like, oh, I'm kind of worried about you if that's the goal, like let's, you know, type deal. But at the same time, I'm going, that's not a realistic goal. That's, that's the dream. So you have to like find ways to like bucket everything up. Like a goal should be, Hey, I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to achieve these milestones. And then when I achieve milestones then I reach a goal. Mm -hmm. And so in, um, excuse me, a dream. And then when you're in the dream, then you set new goals and then you set new milestones. And then who knows where necessarily the dream takes you, but 
if I ask a 17 year old kid, Hey, what's your goal? And they say the big leagues, I'm like, that's a dream. Let's set some realistic goals. Cause you'll never feel whole because you can't accomplish anything if that's the case. Right. Because if you ask a 17 year old, you say, you ask a five-year-old, uh, you know, little league baseball player or T-ball player, Hey, what's your, what's your goal for baseball? And he says to play in the big leagues, they're going to pat him on the butt and say, that's a nice goal. Well, it's the same, it's the same concept, right? It's all how you look at it and what the perception is. And it's about bucketing all these, these things up to reach these milestones to then achieve a dream. And then maybe the dream doesn't even pan out how you think. Maybe you find yourself living in another dream that you didn't even realize was actually happening, but it's about just constantly trying to get better. Well, Chris Daner is now a friend of mine. I've known him for about a year and he's the CEO of dugout mugs. If you've probably heard of that yeah, if you're yeah. baseball, right? So he's the CEO. He joined when they were doing 50,000 in sales and then he really put them on the map. They're going to do $20 million in sales this year. Well, he loved collecting baseball cards, getting to know baseball players, just loved the game of baseball. And he likes to drink beer. And he's like, look, now I'm the CEO of Dugout Mugs. I get to meet all the players. I can call yeah. any club and say, hey, I'd like to come. Can you give me a box? They'll give him a box. And he's just the most happy-go-lucky guy you'll ever meet. At age 33, just, two, I think, two, three, four years ago, before he got into all this, he was, he was about to die. And he was like, God, if you save me, like, I want to do something big in the world. And then he was saved. And then now he's doing just very, very neat things. He's got amazing daughter and, uh, and wife and just a cool guy. But he's a perfect example of no one could have told him that he would be the CEO of a $22 million company and get to be drinking beer at any baseball stadium he wants ever. <laughs> yeah. And the best part is he probably doesn't even care how much the company's worth. Totally. Yeah. He's, he's just, all he's, about he's enjoying experience. what he's doing. Yeah, that's right. So that's awesome. Um, so now with your current work with your organization, what, what excites you about pollen returns? Like how did you get into that kind of business? Um, <laughs> so when I knew I was done um, playing, I'm laying in bed. Uh, I can't sleep. It's September. There's a lot of my a lot of my mind. I'll spare everybody the details um, or you know the thoughts, so to speak. Uh, but in college, um, I used to not in a, a cheesy way. I used to have like a an invention like notebook because uh, you had to do study hall as a as an athlete at Clemson, and you had to do ten or twelve hours a week. And if you had over like a three five, you you could get out of study hall. And I'm like, well, I got one goal like for, for school that's to get over three five because I can't, I can't, I don't want to be doing this in the spring. I'll tell you that much. But <laughs> so I'm like, I got to get over, you know, get, make good grades. But at the same time, you know, I'm also going, I got three or four hours a lot of times where I don't have anything to do. And in the room, you sit in a large room and it's not like there's probably, there's probably cameras now with all the updates, but this is 2009. And you have like the archetype of like the angry librarian you know, sitting there like, you know, shh, like you can't talk you, and YouTube's, you know, the, the platform at the time. And so you, you can't watch a YouTube video. You can't watch a movie. If you are watching a movie, you have to have like a show, like the fact that you had to, you had to watch it for, for school. And so I would sit there and draw up different diagrams and like make, um, you know, different inventions up and like try to source who I'd want to, uh, you know, buy the materials from or how much it would cost and, and just do all these different types of things. And, I almost did packaging science uh, at Clemson. It's like one of their unique majors, but 
they, I took a class and they're always talking about the last mile is 50% of the cost, 50% of the cost. And so this is when Uber was relatively new to the scene. And I'm like, well, why, why isn't Uber delivering these goods at a fraction of the cost? Because we go by these DCs constantly. And so I never thought about it during my playing career. Like, but I'm like laying in bed and I'm like, I can't stop thinking about this. Like it's, it's every night. I'm like, this is pissing me off that this is not being done. And so I started exploring it and going down all these avenues and that's really where it started. Um, and then I happened to meet somebody who said, Hey, I think this is a good idea. I mean, I haven't dumped any money into this yet, or I hadn't, you know, it was really more preliminary and drawing out the initial maybe concept. And he's like, you know, I think this is a good idea, but you really have two people to sell this to. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, well, if they say no, you're, you're, you're done. Like there's nothing you can do. And on top of that, I will say being a part of a union myself previously uh, with baseball, I guess still kind of technically you're still there. Right. But although I'm not active um, yeah, you're not going to get anything done with the union, especially uh, on that front, you're going to take away their actual items they deliver for their income. Um, so I'm like, yeah, that's a pretty good point. But he mentioned you should look at returns. And so I started diving into that. I'm like, whoa, this space is huge. And it's kind of like the underbelly of retail where as a consumer, we all think, well, I returned it. They're just going to put it back on the shelf or put it back, you know, somewhere to be refulfilled out of an e-commerce warehouse fulfillment center. And it's really not the case, so to speak. Um, and there's all these different solutions out there that from customer interfacing to where do the goods go to being more direct and expediting on the supply chain side, like when it's in the supply chain by 5% or 10%, or, you know, you have other companies who take on these returns and they resell them, which is a huge market. It's like $300 billion of the jobber market. But at the same time, nobody's looking at the area between consumer and drop off, which is actually the slowest part of the reverse supply chain. It's 20 plus days of an average time it takes a consumer to bring an already return that's already existent, so to speak, that they're going to be returning and placing it into the FedEx, UPS, USPS supply chain. And if you can expedite that process by 50%, let's just say, what you can do to, and you, you did touch on it earlier a moment, like a little bit before, but you know, what you can do to inventory turns and how they increase, you know, what you can do to actually the purchase inventory purchase where now companies can retain more capital because I can still service the same amount of consumers who are also in my same kind of growth levels, but I can purchase 25 to 40% less inventory in order to accomplish this. Mm -hmm. So now they don't have to spend 50 or to hundred million dollars on capital uh, worth of inventory sitting there. They can spend, keep that money, retain it. Don't put it against credit card, you know, their credit line or get interest accrued on it. They can actually hold on to that money and do what they see best fit. That's interesting because I mentioned to you, I worked for FedEx early on in, in Los Angeles and I actually flew to Hong Kong, China for uh, an international meeting for FedEx before they opened the lanes there and everything else. And I, I worked with this guy named David and, um, and Dave he was a previous advertising guy. And so he printed up on a big ad chart, an Excel spreadsheet that talked about inventory turns. And, and, he, and his whole mission in life was he helped co-invent the Dell direct distribution model. And so he would, we would go in together to all these different companies and say, hey, 
how much inventory do you have in your warehouse? What if you could, in some cases, we had to slightly change the packaging and the weight and the dim, dimensional weight and all that kind of thing and say, hey, instead of bringing it in, keeping it like this one place in Beverly Hills, they ship mirrors, high-end mirrors, like $2,000 mirrors. And we said, what if you could eliminate all that office space and ship it direct to the hotels? And so we helped them collapse. We had a lot of customers like that. And I just remember, look at the inventory carrying costs and, and all those numbers you're talking about. And it was like, you, when you simplify, when you make it simple, it's, there's a lot of money that's, that's hidden there, in there. So, yeah. And I mean, we, we see an opportunity on the CX side where you're kind of like meshing these two, because by the way, for anybody who's listening, Pollen is, is a software enabled solution that facilitates pickups through the gig ecosystem from your front porch, AKA the returns that you're trying to make. And so what that does is it obviously there's a CX value uh, that happens too, because now the consumer has a sense of ease and like the numbers that we have are actually crazy from our first run when we did the pilots, uh, more hyper local. And um, it's truly insane. Like 75% of consumers are less likely to leave an item in a shopping cart. Like that number is crazy. Even if you hit 30% of that, right? Of all the items that are left in a shopping cart, because you have of all goods they ever get put into a shopping cart, only 30% make it past the transaction point. And think about how easy we've made it to actually do it where it's a fingerprint or my face recognition, et cetera, or log into my PayPal account, right? So there's all these easy ways to do this, but yet only 30% make it through the transaction point. Now, that's something we're working on with our partners as we gather our KPIs to actually have that number hard in real numbers outside of the surveys that we have, uh, that we had taken by the consumers. But it's... um it's really, really cool. And it's been a lot of fun. And as I said, there's so much overlap where I get to just dump my passions that I had in baseball into this. Um, there's an intro I should make, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, but Bench Century is a company that has these uh, porch, you put this thing on your porch and the, the drivers can get into it, but the porch pirates can't. And so he's been selling the crud out of this. He's doing some pretty big partnerships. He's been at it for three, four years. And the C, the former COO of BOA, the place where you, you know, in your boots, where you tie them up if you're snowboarding or something like yeah. that. So they've got a pretty big time COO that's helping with all the design and everything. Um, but, I, you know, possibly an interesting uh, conversation. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's, I'm definitely, I'm always interested, especially with, with folks in uh, in the space, although it's, it runs parallels, right? You know, it's not a, a direct overlap and that's, that's what's unique. Yeah, for sure. Well, last question for you today. And that is really usually one of my favorite questions, Spencer. And that is what role does faith play in your journey? You know, you, you lost hearing in one of your ears and a lot of people could say, oh, this is terrible. My life's never going to be the same. And yet we're here talking today and you got a smile on your face. What's, uh, what role does faith play in your journey? Um, well, I have a, an incredible family and there's a lot to be thankful for. Um, I mean, I got an incredible group of uh, individuals, a team working on pollen with me. Um, the people that I got to meet during this process, the people that I met during baseball, um, it's huge, right? You know, you have, a, you have something that is, that that's special and, you know, you can, you can fall back on. I think, uh, as we said earlier, you know, things come to you when the time's right. Um, 
And I think people come to you when the time's right. And so for me, that's what, you know, that's what, that's how faith has played a big role in this is the people that enter your life uh, and even exit your life, right? At certain times, that's, that's, that to me is, it's, it's, it's incredible when you look back and you can reflect or, you know, remove yourself maybe from a situation here and there to assess where you are, where you're at. I think it's, that's special. And that's, um, that's the, the faith aspect and uh, how I look at that and what, what comes in and what leaves, I think is, uh, is what's played the biggest role uh, in my journey so far. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for sharing everything today. If people want to get a hold of you or maybe someone's in logistics and have some ideas or could collaborate with you, uh, reach out. It's paulinreturns.com, P-O-L-L-E-N returns.com. Spencer Keyboom, it's K-I-E-B-O-O-M and uh, pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm there. So uh, I try to do my best and um, thank you for offering this platform too, Chad. This is this is great. It's um, it's a lot of fun. And uh, I'm going to probably go back to looking at some legal documents and wrapping those things up. Yeah, that's right. Well, um, best of luck to the rest of your family and Carter and everything that he's doing. And um, it sounds like you've got a pretty cool family. So congratulations on all your success and may Paulin do exactly what it's meant to do. So thanks for joining today. Thanks, thanks everybody for joining the Living Better Story podcast. Thank you for joining us on the You Matter to Christ podcast. We hope this journey has reminded you of the incredible truth that your life holds immense value and significance to Christ. As you go about your day, may you carry the assurance that no matter what you face, you are deeply cherished and loved. Remember, you matter to Christ. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and share it with others who may benefit from this message. Stay tuned for more transformative episodes where we continue to explore the depth of God's love and grace. Until next time, remember that you are not alone. Christ's love is with you, guiding and strengthening you every step of the way. May your life be filled with hope, purpose, and the knowledge that you matter to Christ. <laughs>